Welcome to Masters of Color, brought to you by lowpost.com and ravengrade.com. I'm your host, Cullen Kelly, and my guest today is Peter Doyle. Now, I am especially excited about this episode because Peter Doyle may well be my favorite colorist of all time. In addition to his credits on films such as Inside Lewin Davis and Darkest Hour and the Lord of the Rings series, Peter is a true digital intermediate pioneer with a deep technical knowledge that he harnesses in support of his creativity. We have got an awesome conversation in store for you today on the art and the science of grading compelling images. This episode is sponsored by Pixelview.io, a streaming solution that provides both a high quality live feed of your grade, as well as a built-in video chat, facilitating easy collaborations that make for happy clients. Emailing files to your clients and getting written feedback back can be a hassle. With color, it's often easier to show than to tell. You can use promo code MASTER to get a 15% discount on a hardware encoder at pixelview.io. In the meanwhile, let's check out my conversation with the one and only Peter Doyle. Hey, Peter. How are we? Good morning. Doing great. Where are you? I'm in Los Angeles. Well, I'm, it's impressive you're up early, although you'll be doing your Tai Chi and you've already had your little run, haven't you? Yeah, I've, I've got my, uh, I, I get my best work done at this hour, man. Very good. And, and you're already well into your day. It looks like you've already got some grading done over there. Uh, yeah, well, kind of. Well, there's a lot of shooting happening, so there's uh, an awful amount of dailies to check. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me this morning. I'm really excited to be talking to you and maybe a little bit nervous because you're, you're one of my, my heroes in, in this world of color grading. So uh, very, very happy to be chatting with you this morning. Well, that's a little, little scary. Okay. Well, we can, we, we can both be a, a little scared and a little nervous. Um, oh, very good. Man, I mean, so where do we begin? Um, you obviously have an incredible resume and body of work as a colorist, uh, going all the way back to the very advent of uh, the digital intermediate and digital color grading, uh, and even prior to that, uh, starting with you know films like The Matrix and Dark City that really like pushed into uh, that space and were complicated uh, color grading workflows uh, above and beyond being digitized just with the amount of control you're exerting over the images themselves. And then of course, the Lord of the Rings, uh, the Harry Potter films, Inside Lewin Davis, Edge of Tomorrow. I'm literally just listing a handful of favorites because there's so many uh, that you've worked on. But I, I guess one of the questions that uh, came up for me as I was reviewing uh, your body of work is wondering how you calibrate your eyes to all of these different genres and forms that you've worked in from fantasy to action to family to period documentary adventure like all these different genres how do you calibrate your eyes to the needs of a project and the the genre that it's playing with it uh okay uh i think the first thing is to really define what your or my role is in the little kingdom that is each film and if we think of each film as its own little uh kingdom or state or dictatorship depending on the uh 
<laughs> ambience at the time. Um, I, I think what you really, or I guess I'll just speak about myself, hopefully not third person. What, what you really need to do is to define exactly what it is is expected of me. And typically my role is to provide the technology and the workflows that allow a production designer and a DP and a director to create a world. And uh, ideally that's you know, normally created on set, obviously. Um, and the, the, the very essence of filmmaking is obviously to record that, whether it be on film or digital or, or, or whatever. Now that process inevitably becomes interpretive because you, you, you are now capturing reality and uh, just by the very nature of it being a technology, it, it will no longer be completely real. And that interpretation fascinates me because depending where you sit, uh, I guess philosophically, you could argue that uh, technology should never dictate the creative process. But likewise, the creative process is, it is completely and utterly influenced by the technology, simply because if we take at, at the absolute most basic, if we really trim it way back to the essence, you'll have a production designer and a DP and a director create a world on set, let's say a green wall with a, uh, with a uh, black skinned actress. Um, that on set looks the way people want it to look uh, to their eyes. But because we're making a film, we're actually uh, filming that or recording that. So that, at that point, you are exposed to technology. And there's a very interesting intersection between, well, do you let the technology drive you or do you take control of the technology? And what's fascinating to me is over the last pretty much three decades, to an extent, we really let the technology dictate how we saw our images because we had no choice and that was called film. So film negative would interpret um, the, the, the light values and, and the lighting curve. And then the film print would really define the colors. And um, the, 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 the way those colors were interpreted or, or read was really defined by the manufacturers, Kodak, Agfa, uh, you know, uh, Fuji. And the, the creative process was having enough knowledge and experience with how these different processes worked um, to create then an interpretation of what was on set. So the production, and if we think of that, I mean, this is an incredibly verbose answer, so I'm sorry, but if, if we it. think of it in the most extreme example, if we take the intent of having a film in black and white it's it's how that black and white interprets the tone scale um on the set so a, produ a production designer 
will, will and especially makeup will ha will have to make some concessions to how the film print and the film uh, negative would interpret the skin tones and and the uh, the, the set. Um, so that there was that two way um, exchange between knowing enough about the different processes, but also having the process, you know, define how, uh, how this would work. And then that then rippled through the production where production designers would have an experience and uh, with how the, the, you know, the film print would, would interpret these scenes. So that ultimately was the craft of filmmaking and that there was a, a collective knowledge of how you would read the scene and how you would light the scene. So lighting was not just lighting, it was the choice of your filters and the choice of your print stocks and that whole um, process of craft. Um, so what, what's fascinating is over the last, say, three decades, as we've moved from film, a very organic pigment-based way of interpreting colors, to digital, where we've approached more and more this ideal of having the ability to have a true and accurate representation of what we see on set. So we are almost at the point where what you see on set is what you could see on projection. And you can see that all taken to the max with Peter's work and his high frame rate, where then they're also taking the idea of motion even further. Now that intersection or that almost scale between a very interpretive way of producing your, your, uh, your imagery through to the pursuit of an absolute true and accurate representation of film it can involve a lot of technology. So what I consider my role is to be um, across that and to help in that process of how, how could we get this green that we really like on set um, to reproduce uh, on, on the screen. And the, 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 there's sometimes a bit of resistance or criticism that that's, uh, that's very technical and we should never let our technology dictate our imagery. But it, I actually consider it the exact opposite. And that's to, to quote Professor Alexander Kluger, who was part of the Oberhausen Film Manifesto with Werner Herzog and Wim Wenders, um, and also worked with uh, uh, Adorno at the very start of the Frankfurt School of Marxism. Um, he, he made a quote uh, once when, when I was doing some work with him, which has always stuck with me, and that's using the very tools that are used to oppress us, we will take back our dreams. So wow. I, uh, I feel that rather than criticize technology and say, well, it's not, um, you know, we, we should never let, let it dictate what we want to do. Uh, I feel that we should take control of the technology and, and make it serve us and have an understanding of how, how we can get to where we want to be. And then if that's presented to 
uh, the filmmakers and particularly in, in my little world, it's very much the DP, director and production designer. That's like, they're, they're the kind of, that's the holy trilogy that, that I answer to. And that's, um, what is it that you want to do? Okay, well, we could try this and we could try that. How does that work? And then it becomes a, 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 an interpretive process and therefore a, a collaborative process. So, yeah, and then on a personal level, to answer your question, how do I calibrate my eyes? It's actually in that process of establishing visually what is the, what is the hope um, rather than just looking at some references and going, okay, we can copy that. So rather than always doing a, a, an homage or, or, or making something retro, it's more of an interpretation. Um, so uh, so in, in terms of calibrating my eyes, it, it, it's, not, it, it's never really a question of trying to change how I view it. It's really learning how everybody else is learning it. And uh, that's, that's all part of this fantastic new field that, that really does seem to be starting, say, in the last few years, which is color linguistics. And that, that concept that the very words that we use to describe color affect how we, in fact, perceive color. Uh, and that that fascinates me because I've always felt that color theory and you know opening up your Manzel book and saying well the harmonious color of our lavender should actually be a green that that to me has always been a little um, uh, a little lightweight and uh, it ignores many many cultural questions uh, whereas acknowledging that becomes interesting so to to to, to answer your question, how do I calibrate my eyes? It's not a question of actually calibrating, it's really more of an understanding. And it, it's a bit like when, when you, you meet a bunch of people from different countries, you really try to find that common language and then have that, um, that uh, forward motion. That makes absolute sense and it, it, it's such a cool concept for uh, that idea of, of moving your uh, sort of creative palette or your your vision from one project to another is you're starting by being a really good student and a really good listener, it seems like, and figuring out, okay, what are we trying to do? And then doing something that uh, I see throughout your career, and I totally agree, is is the the way we should be engaging with technology, which is to think about the technology and the processes and the systems at your disposal, and then to really tailor an end-to-end -end pipeline of like what's happening in between this sensor and the screen and how can I make it best agree with what I now understand to be the desired uh, aesthetic or the creative intent of the particular work that I'm doing? Uh, yeah, because I, I think the thing to understand is to, uh, I mean, without making it too political, is to, to not be victims or passive, but, but to actively engage. And the, the, the first thing is that... Um, you know, film stocks were actually made, certainly they were made by companies and very large companies, but they were actually designed and built uh, by people. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't it be interesting to actually ring up those people and go, this is what we're doing, what are you doing? And then out of that, you could find something interesting. 
So, you know, with the, with the Fuji stock, there was Hirosan who was working on the, um, you know, we, we for the uh, original Lord of the Rings, that there was um, uh, a particular Fuji film stock we were using, but we, we weren't really able to get the particular kind of blues slash cyan that we wanted. Uh, so by really speaking with Fuji, it seemed to be a pretty easy tweak. So they really did um, change the chemistry and uh, released a new print stock, uh, which became the base of that film, um, which was an amazing thing to do. And uh, even with Kodak at the time, there was talk of being able to uh, do uh, kind of customized film stocks um, because it, it, is something in, in fact I was just chatting with some filmmakers yesterday about is, is that it, it it really is about 10 years ago that film print stocks kind of finished off and to, to give you some idea it was on the last Harry on one of the last of the Harry Potters we were typically making um, print runs of 27,000 prints um, so the sheer scale of that meant that um, both Fuji and Kodak were absolutely at the, the zenith. They were really at the peak of their technology of, of print stocks. And, um, you know, there was like the, the, the 5218 print stock came out, but there was like a little issue with, with its sensitivity to infrared, which whilst it looked pretty good for um, skin tone, it was a nightmare to work with in a film lab because all your little infrared lights would actually fog the film. Um, so then out of that came the, the 2219. So at the time, the, the ability to modify chemistry was uh, absolutely at its peak. Um, and then because of digital came through and a whole other reasons, um, it, it's really taken a while for, for digital to kind of catch up to, to that ability of people being in control of their technology and being able to respond to the market. So I, I really think in the last five years, what's become exciting is really the explosion of the 3D lookup table, um, which you know at the time really wasn't a big thing. But now that color science ha has really uh, bec become firmly established in the process of um, color grading, it, it's now really a, a, a fantastic time um, to be color grading with digital tools because our, our manufacturers and the, the, there's a lot of um, you know, independent consultants around that are able to respond and, and to come up with different ideas um, as it was at the time with the filmmakers. So in Norway, the, the, there's a fantastic uh, university with, um, with a very strong color science uh, faculty who are doing some really great things. Obviously the Rochester Institute of Technology, you know, with their involvement with, with Munzel. And uh, uh, there's a university in Zurich who are also doing some really very interesting things with the color in terms of film restorations and print stocks. Um, so th there's a lot of very interesting things around and to be able to, you know, tap into that 
and, and really have the attitude that um, if the software package that I have does not do what it is we want, let's just build it. Yes. I mean, I, I think you're, you're touching on what I find to be the most exciting and most challenging aspect of like contemporary digital color grading, where it's like we have everything potentially inside of the box and we have the potential to be able to iterate and develop very quickly and to uh, say like, hey, let's build half a dozen different, uh, you know, kind of creative print stocks if we want to do that for a different picture and try th different things out we have a better ability to do that inside of a box than even, uh, as you mentioned, like Kodak and Fuji at their Zenith, they're still dealing with an organic analog compound and the chemistry uh, thereof that are just complicated and slower, I would imagine. So we've got all this like potential and opportunity. And the big challenge now is like, how do we like skillfully wield it, I think, which again is, is part of what has marked your career from the very beginning of figuring out like, all right, we've got this massively powerful system, how are we going to work within it to, in, in accordance with our creative goals? Yeah, it, it's also, uh, I think, a question of not clogging up the creative conversation. Um, and, and again, it, it keeps coming back to that, that, that idea of language. So if, uh, for example, uh, Joel Cohen uh, um, has just finished Macbeth, shot by Bruno Delbano, and it's being premiered at the New York Festival uh, next month. Um, so the, the overall brief was for that to be black and white. So you go, okay, that's great. And then the, the next question is, okay, um, so what, what are we thinking? Are you doing a theatrical release or a streaming or a, a film print release? Um, and um, you know the response is definitely a a contemporary theatrical release. So that means digital projection, and then streaming. Um, so to 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 give an example of how it becomes interpretation and language, um, the the reality is that you cannot release a black and white DCP. There is no such thing because there are no achromatic digital projections well outside the medical industry. <laughs> right. uh, so, so in the medical industry, you can have a true achromatic, true black and white um, monitor, but the, you know, the, the digital cinema chain is color. That's the way it is. So that, that, that immediately would seem to be um, a downside because you can't have true black and white. But the upside of that is that now you are not, you are not passively held to the actual white point of the black and white film stock that is handed to you, whether you use Tri-X or Orvo or, or whatever. You, you, you now have this ability to take control of the actual white point that you project. So it means that whilst you can't project pure black and white on a DCP projector, you, you, that's the downside. The upside is you can actually control whether it's a warm black and white, whether it's a cold black and white, you could even dynamic across it and all of that. Now, 
the thing is to sit down with these filmmakers and make the statement, well, there is no such thing as a black and white projector and uh, you're going to be able to control the white point. I mean, you would just be using language that just makes no sense whatsoever. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a funny thing, but uh, an, an old colleague of mine that I worked with for a long time, the late Andrew Lesney, the DP, the DP would say, it's always about presentation. So rather than sit with the filmmakers and say, well, you can't really do black and white because you can only do a color projection. It's more about, we can, we can do this black and white imagery, but we can now control whether it's warm or, or, or white. And then to present language that the filmmakers can hang on to. So for example, uh, both Joel Cohen and, and Bruno are, are very big, um, photography or photographic print collectors. Uh, they both have uh, amazing collections, um, and, and they're very uh, they're very aware of the uh, of um, photographic printing. You know, old school darkroom. So if you then make the the kind of the the comparison to well, you could have this as uh, you could have this look quite creamy, like the famous Japanese seagull uh, paper print, or you could have this look like uh, you know a, a platinum palladium print. Um, by by finding, and again, it's language. By finding that common reference and not being too stuck with the interpretation, um, you you can then build a common language, even though it's completely jargon and slang and anybody new to the world wouldn't actually have a clue what anybody is saying. But, you know, at that point in time for this film, for this process, for, you know, these 200 hours that we're grading, we're all using a common language where we all kind of have the general idea of what it means. So that meant that we could go into making this film that would be released in the filmmaker's mind as black and white, but technically it's being released as a color image that's truly desaturated where we are controlling the white point. So rather than just presenting a black and white image on the screen and going, okay, well, it's coming up as D, you know, D6000 because it's a DCP, um, we can control it. So that the reality is that we were able to very subtly dynamic and change from warm to cool um, throughout the whole film. And that, that was something that nobody had actually even thought of before, but that, that was say like my contribution, which was, okay, we're going to do black and white. Great. What's black and white. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think that's so fascinating and, and to me speaks to really the heart of what it is to be uh, a, a, an excellent colorist where you're talking about doing two things really skillfully. First, if I think about your initial response and the, the background and skill that you bring to, well, how would we actually do a truly black and white reproduction and, uh, you know, like understanding the technologies that are going to be harnessed in that process there is probably no one else in the world, no artist in the world who's better qualified than you to sort of help arbitrate that conversation. And yet that's not enough. And if you had only stopped there, and as you mentioned at the start of your 
response just now, turned around and then dumped all of that technical jargon and those raw considerations on your collaborators, you probably would have failed in your charge to uh, support and uh, sort of shepherd their vision to life. So it's like there's understanding what needs to happen on that more technical sort of like machine language of the process type of level. But then as you, you keep referring to using language that is meaningful and visceral to collaborate and to get everybody where they want to be and, and make it a pleasurable process that everybody's bought into and feels like an active and meaningful participant in. That's so fascinating. Well, yeah, it, it might sound incredibly trite, but it really is about uh, respect and empathy. And that if you, uh, and you know, I, I've had the, the, the pleasure and blessing to work with, uh, say, say for example, a director such as Joel Cohen. Um, when Joel gives a note, the note is not something like, could you make it darker and put a window here and um, make, give me a little more contrast. The note really is, at this point, this beat in the film, we want this to feel a little more angst and uh, we want the tonality to feel kind of dark and heavy. That gives me then the space to respond with an interpretation using like my tools and go, okay, well, we could do this and this. Does this feel dark and uh, angst? And that's kind of what we always expect of our filmmakers as colorists. I don't think any of us really want to be like micromanaged and told exactly the buttons to push. But frankly, it actually goes the other way. I don't think any filmmaker wants to be told that they have to have the language and the understanding of the tools that we're using. So that we need to be able to respond in a common language and and not sub and and to give to to give the filmmakers the space to then be able to interpret to say okay well we we can get a black and white image for in this example as an anecdote we can get up we can get up on the screen a black and white image that's absolutely no problem here are a couple of considerations that we could actually have a play with the first thing is how do we get to black and white and that, that's a discipline that's been in filmmaking for a hundred years. Do we use a green filter? Do we use a red filter? Do we use an orange? Do we go for really, you know, um, glowy skin? Do we go with very dark skin? You know, um, and then, then you kind of narrow that down in, and you, you can may, maybe make some references and go, okay, well, if you think of the black and white work of Helmut Newton, who um, had always had very stark contrast in, in skin tones because he was typically using a green filter. If you think of like all the, um, you, you know, the black and white work of Richard Avedon, you know, he was u- using very much uh, this sort of platinum palladium printing, so quite warm, but, but very, uh, very hard contrast. Um, so th- that's, they're all the kind of considerations that we can think about. And the second is, you know, straight up, if you think of black and white films, uh, you know, through the 20s and and 30s, I mean, they were tinted that, you know, they would be blue and green and 
yeah. there'd be a whole assumption there. So, you know, let's have a play and see what it would look like to um, start to tint it. And obviously, I think these days to go with like completely red and blue, that's, that's not appropriate, say, in this case. But it did raise a very interesting area, and that's like an investigation of, well, this could work. And then that, and it's that investigation and that, that process of knowing enough of your technology to really to be able to control it so that when the filmmakers go, well, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. What happens if we go further? Or what happens if we go down that road? Or, or can we just get it looking, um, you know, it, it's looking too hard. What, what could we do? And it's that to, to, uh, to answer your region, your really original question. It's, it's that dialogue and investigation that I, I find um, interesting and particularly sitting there with the idea of, well, if it's not available today, let's work out what we want to do and I'll just get it built. Yeah. That's so cool. And I mean, that, that, that leads me to something I'm dying to ask you about, which is this, you, you've had this ability and this penchant throughout your career for doing exactly what you just said, which is saying, well, I need this and this doesn't exist. I need to build it. Let's build it. Um, and we can go all the way back to uh, like the Lord of the Rings when uh, you were working on the color grading uh, on, you know, the pipeline for, uh, those films and you essentially, if I understand correctly, you basically had to commission custom software in order to do that. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I think if you think of Lord of the Rings, certainly the, you know, they finished shooting uh, around the late 2000s, which meant the, the original project or the idea of it was, was really kickstarted around 98, 99. Um, now the whole <clears throat> the whole team of that was with Barry Osborne, the producer, and Andrew Lesney, who at the time was shooting Babe Two um, over in Australia, and, and all, all sorts of people. And the, the brief was how could we grade a feature film rather than a commercial? Because I, I think if we really remember at, at the moment or, or nowadays that there's a lot of movement from this theatrical cinematic world into commercials and into photography. So that, that famous phrase of, well, it, we, we want it to look cinematic. Um, I think what a lot of people have maybe forgotten is certainly in the 90s, um, television and TV commercials were very strong. So there, uh, and at the time, you could shoot on your neg. You would have your telecine, and you, 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 you know, you, you kind of, you had the beginnings of the digital technology. And because it was only like thirty seconds, it was kind of containable. So there was actually quite a degree of flow from the commercial world into the theatrical world, and also at the time uh, with. Uh, music videos because they, they were quite a big thing, you know, with the launch of MTV. So uh, aesthetically, there was a lot of very creative activity happening in the music video world and, in fact, the commercial world. And that those those aesthetic considerations, which were made possible because of the technology that was available, could not really be considered by 
filmmakers doing a, a filmmake world. Because um, if, if we remember years ago when George Miller first made Lorenzo's Oil, the, the original intent of that film <coughs> was to, in fact, um, start um, black and white and for the entire duration of the film, fade through to color. Um, that was vaguely possible in, in the research labs of Kodak at the time, <laughs> making the Cineon. But, you know, just practically and financially, it just would have been very, very, very difficult. So, so the, the, the flow of, of aesthetics or, or the, the flow of the, the creative considerations from commercial and music video world into the theatrical world um, was uh, sort of a one-way traffic that way rather than how it is these days, which is like the other way. So at the start of Lord of the Rings, it really was the, the discussion, how could we bring these tools to the filmmaking world? And the first thing was, well, the reality is we're going to have to be able to do this for three hours. So the idea of, if you think of the, of the time, the big high-end commercials, like a 30-second grade, could take you know a couple of days. Yeah. Um, that's not going to work for three hours. So you know, at the time, you know, we investigated whether we could use a couple of, for example, flames and, and all of that, but it, it just wasn't viable to just get the sheer throughput of, of work. And it was also technically, um, it, it might be even be impossible to conceive of these days, but at the time, you know, disc storage was a big deal and also bit depth. So we, we really wanted to be able to record back to film with at least a 12-bit log or a 10-bit log file, or at least a 12-bit. And there really wasn't any digital package available that could do that. Because at the time, the, the flames were only like 8-bit with their, the reality engine and all of that. So that that crystallized into a brief. We need a package that will allow us to grade, uh, but it needs to be at least um, 10 bit log or a bit depth of, of 12 bit. And uh, <clears throat> we need to be able to scale it across a few things. And then we need some other color calibration. And at, at the time I, I spoke to various manufacturers um, who um, felt that it was either too early or they really weren't the first, that they just felt that that wasn't really a market. Um, so eventually I, I did find some, you know, some software guys and they built a package and then, then that, that kind of worked from there. Um, so, and then these days, the big thing is, is actual manipulation and color science. Uh, so working with the different, um, so the, 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 the kind of the big thing now is color appearance models and are we in fact grading in the best color spaces and, and is in fact RGB really the, the best way to grade? Yeah. And what, what's proving interesting is the answer is yes and no. And certainly in the last few years, um, certainly ASUS has done some great work to really um, help just calm things down and to give us a kind of good base from which we can wrap out different things that you know so that now 
the idea of a scene referred and a display referred, that all makes sense. But what's, what I think is the new frontier is this idea of, of, of color appearance models and really um, being able to truly grade in the space that we are looking at. Um, like a, a, perceptual, a more perceptually uniform type space? Yeah, because at the moment, if you think, you know, we, we work in our, our big fat, you know, ACES CCT or the, you know, ARRI wide gamut, these huge big color spaces, and then we're, we're ramming all of that through a lookup table or LMT or whatever. So it means that the, 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 in the most simplest terms, the control that's called red isn't actually being seen as red. It's actually being seen as like burgundy. And that, that, yeah. um, uh, that, that's what we're all used to. Uh, and certainly there's a, a lot of the guys, you know, say the commercial world that'll go kind of commando and just will grade in display space. Um, and that's fine. That can work for them, but it, it can be problematic for other things. So I, I think that's, that's kind of what's interesting. Well, that's kind of the new frontier at the moment. That's fascinating and, and, and brings me to something else I really wanted to ask you about, which is if we think about, uh, you know, this evolving frontier of, you know, like working in a proper sort of scene referred workflow up until the very tail of the chain where we are targeting a particular display uh, for a particular deliverable and different color management solutions that, you know, like ACES kind of uh, began the uh, evolution of and that we now have, you know, different answers to like, in my resolve, I have my resolve color management in addition to ACES and in your base light, you have the TCAM system and, and base light actually I think even does a better job of kind of offering up all these options like, like a tasting menu to the artist of like, well, do you want to have an ACES pipeline? Do you want to have a TCAM pipeline? Do you want to use Aries pipeline? Like all these different options. And what I find fascinating and overwhelming is like after I went through that initial learning curve of understanding color management, then coming to understand like, oh wait, so like even though they're both technically sound, like Aries answer to getting from big fat dynamic range color gamut down to say seven or nine or even thousand nit uh, PQ, this, their solution to that isn't gonna visually look identical to Baselight solution or to Resolve's solution. Like what's the deal there? How can that be? And how do I as an artist navigate that and choose make the right choice like the, it, it's it's a crazy overwhelming thing I, I guess i'm just curious if you like how you think about that and manage that uh yeah well i i think you, you uh i think it's it's a matter of just choosing or picking and choosing what it is you want to learn um so to, to take on the whole idea of to be a color scientist and to do a phd in it that's not really where I want to be because uh, there's also way too many considerations that is beyond my skill set. So, you know, I yeah. suck at maths. So <laughs> there, therefore color science is just not going to work for me because I wouldn't have a clue how to navigate through the kind of the maths that involved. Um, but I, I think to at least have a solid understanding of how your imagery is being affected so that you you can then take control of it yeah so to to understand what a color space is um can be very helpful 
because it, it then means that at least you 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 can kind of understand uh, or, or take control of that. And then the the, the second thing is basically uh, tone mapping and gamut mapping, whilst it, it's just incredibly complicated and there's you know a million ways to go about it. I think understanding just the process of that um, then means that you you yourself can 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 take control and then when you see something you go well that's that's because of that so um, uh, I, I can resolve that and I think the other thing is to really um, make your software developers your friend sure um, because they're going to have a much better idea of, of what's going on than uh, than yourself and uh, whilst it's expensive, it's also just having your own R&D time to just really uh, try stuff yourself. That makes sense. And it seems like you've engaged with software developers and uh, color scientists and other professionals within this space in the same way you've talked about being a, a really generous and attentive collaborator with the filmmakers that you work with, it's, it seems like you've really collaborated well and, and treated as uh, equals and experts and valuable members of the team, all of those uh, role players, image scientists, developers, you know, all the folks that help facilitate, hey, this doesn't exist and I need it to, I, how can I make it so since I don't have a masters in color science and I'm not like a mathematician and I don't understand code. It seems like you've really figured out how to collaborate well with the folks that can help you support those, uh, ambitions. Yeah, well, it's, it's like that old say, you know, old saying, uh, pick your battles. Um, uh -huh. you know, to, to let, let's say to build a lookup table, you know, the, the, there's plenty of packages and just about all the packages allow you to get there. Um, but it, it's really knowing what, what are you, what, what are you trying to do with this lookup table? And that's, um, you know, if you're going to use it for, for grading or are you going to use it for gamut mapping? And, uh, and it's also a question of um, fear because <laughs> if, if you get booked to do a, a large film and, you know, it's 150, $170 million of budget, do you want to be the guy that throws out there a lookup table that's just discovered at the last minute to actually have some like huge problem in the cyan? I mean, yeah, it, it, it breaks down there. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't have the, uh, I'm just not man enough to do that. You know, that, that's when you call in a professional um, where, because that's what they do there. And again, it's that idea of rather than micromanage, it's really you give the brief to the expert because they will then be able to bring to the table their um, experience. Yes. Uh, and then they're going to go, okay, well, we can do that, but you might want to consider this, this, and this. And you go, oh, okay, that's, uh, that's a good idea. Um, and, and, and especially if you work with the manufacturers, you know, for, for, for example, with Dolby and their Dolby Vision, you know, in the early days, you know the the uh, you know the projector was actually being driven with an HDMI, and then then we discovered that they were actually using the uh, uh, SMPTE 
simply full, which is different to normal full. You know, there's four bit depth difference, which for 99% of the imagery doesn't, you, you wouldn't really notice. But if you're, <clears throat> if you find yourself working on an extremely subtle low light imagery, uh, and you're noticing that there's this kind of almost dithering or, or some kind of like noise in the blacks that do, that doesn't doesn't really make sense to then actually ask and then then you discover that that's the case. Um, so it, it it's like you can't know everything and you can't be an expert in everything. And it, it, it's uh, particularly in some of these industrial processes or um, uh, particularly the 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 conversion technologies, because you could say as a colorist, we, we, assume, we assume that there's a pipeline that's working, but that, that pipeline ultimately is just a couple of conversions bolted together. Mm -hmm. So we have a camera sensor that's converting light, and then we have a display technology, you know, that, that's converting a digital signal to an analog. So you, you, you could argue that as a colorist, we are sitting in the middle of a pipeline that's ultimately about conversion technologies and that our job is to um, uh, build palettes and tonalities based on the assumption that we, that, that our imagery will be displayed in the same way that we're seeing it. So, and I am not an expert in conversion technologies at all. Um, but there are people, obviously, you know, uh, Howard Brendel and the team over at, at ARRI and Graham over at RED, uh, and then the Sunny team and, and the, the, the different display technologies. If, if you kind of tap into that world and leave that to the experts, uh, I think that can then make your job a lot easier because you can go, well, that, that's not a grade. That's actually a tweak in my uh, gamut map, for right. example. And right. it's, it's, it's almost like, um, uh, really just getting your parameters locked down so that then you don't have to do all this like hand tweaking. That completely makes sense. And, and I, I think there's a really in, important lesson for uh, all of us listening to you share your insights and experience that you you professed i'm not an expert in this stuff it's not my passion or my field of study and yet you're very curious about it like some of the examples you've already given it it seems to me that at least in a few examples like the 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 slight uh uh scaling like tonal scaling thing that you just mentioned with the dolby projection i imagine you had to ask a question more than once for someone to take you seriously and say oh you're right there actually is a a, a little mismatch there or something that could be tuned or calibrated better i imagine you had to be curious a little persistent and collaborative in order to scratch that itch right yeah well it, it really it, it always comes down to the the famous you know show me so um if, if you really can, if you can really set it up so that you can show well if i do this this happens and if i do this this happens but it doesn't make sense that i need to do this uh huh. Um, what's that? And everyone can then start to think about it. Um, yeah. Uh, how cool. I've got another uh, subject that I want to discuss with you that I, 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 I feel like you are, um, you, you 
you're very future facing uh, in this area where we've thought historically, obviously quite a bit about uh, color reproduction and tone mapping. And uh, in recent years, more about like, oh, how can we target multiple displays and how does HDR affect the way we think and operate? But one of the things that I see you talking uh, about a lot and working with a lot is like texture and specifically MTF. Can you teach us about what's up with MTF? Why should I care about it? And how do you as an artist think about it from end to end and work with it? Uh, why should we care about MTF? Um, well, if we think of what, if I'm always a fan of looking at uh, the photography world, because uh, the, the photographic world has one advantage, well, it has many advantages in that it, it really is just yourself and you're producing a couple of prints and it's just a moment in time. So you, and you, you don't actually, ha you don't have to deal with temporal considerations. You don't actually have to deal with 24 frames. You can, th there's a lot of things you can just do with a film, with a print. And so if, if we just kind of remove the, the baggage of trying to make a film where you, you where you have all the, the time considerations, the, the, the thing that, photographers live and die by is their lens you know the Leica versus the Voigtlander you know and they'll do all sorts of things that you know they'll just breathe on the lens <laughs> you know they'll just put Vaseline they just all hang little trinkets in front of it or get some little fishing wire to just hang it across the in front of the lens to get a flare there's just you're always trying to do something to the image to to render it in interesting ways or, or visually pleasing or, or confrontational ways and then then you're printing it and then then you are always choosing the kind of paper and um the kind of chemistry if it's the old days or, or sharpening so th there's th that process is always a consideration and as part of it, you, you get your tonality, you get your color, and then you get your sharpening to, to really make it very simple. And w whether it's like, um, it, it's calmed down now, but a few years ago, particularly in advertising, if we think of sports, I don't know, uh, all, all the uh, ads for sporting clothes, you know, that was, they were as sharp as hell, you know, they were, you know, that, that was the aesthetic. And then if we think of, um, uh, uh, you know, lifestyle ads from like the nineties where everything had a fog filter on it and everything was glowy and, and soft, but that, that, that thing, that, that texture is a consideration. So then if we take that into the feature world, one consideration is whatever we do to the image, we will have to deal with it for at least two hours. So if we're going to make a really soft, glowy, fantastic image that looks great as like a, um, a, a, single, a single photographic print, you know, are we going to be able to sit through that for two hours or is it just going to get just, is it just going to get in the way of, of the storytelling? Um, and then likewise, 
the super sharp, super high contrast uh, aesthetic again, is that going to work for two hours or, you know, are our actors just going to get, you know, evaporated and, and just, we'll, we'll never actually, uh, we'll just see these like graphic shapes with some voices. Um, so, the, so that, that's one consideration. The, the, the second is that the DPs live and die by the lenses. Um, you know, the, you know, there's a huge, fashion at the moment for anamorphics and vintage anamorphics in front of a digital sensor uh, and Panavision series C's, you know, Panavision have like truly emptied out. There are no anamorphic lenses that you can rent at the moment. Just uh -huh. everybody's doing anamorphic, um, you know, and if you get like a Panavision C series and drop that down to like two eight, that is not a sharp image at all. Uh, <laughs> But it, it's a beautiful image. You yeah. know? It, 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 it's very aesthetically pleasing and it's a very engaging image depending on the story. Likewise, if you get, um, you know, the, the uh, Zeiss Master Primes and run those at like T5, 6 or something, they are as sharp as all yeah. hell. They've got sharp. amazing contrast. And again, that's appropriate. So that that whole consideration, which is driven by the story and the actors, I mean, that, that's all about flair and MTF. You know, how sharp is it, or you know, what's the MTF on it? Uh, likewise, the flair is there, therefore how bloomy. So that what well, once you have that image, um, you know, as a file, you can then take it also and contribute or destroy that. So just as you could get a, um, you could shoot something say on an ARRI A60, let, let's say uh, something like the work of Philippe Rousselot, you, you could shoot with the latest Leica lenses on an ARRI A65 and then light the set so that you really are running at like T5.6. That is like the sharpest, amazing image. It's like, crystal it, it has the, the way the the likers render the image um ha, you know they, they're kind of the, the way their flares work it's like this amazing crystal you know again it's a very beautiful image but you have a 6k image and you're going to display that on a 4k projector so you have to down res it uh -huh. in that process that one button you could just destroy everybody's work that they have spent years of R&D and getting the perfect MDF. Because if you go from 6K to 4K, if you use a Lancos or a Gaussian or, or, or whatever, you can just truly just destroy the image. Um, and, you know, if you down res and let, let's say a typical mistake, you would call up your a Lancos 6 tap, but run it in linear. Uh, that just then means in HDR, you, you're just going to have all this ringing and you're going to have this noise. Um, uh, so you, you basically will have just destroyed the image. Um, so it, it's again, it's marrying your tools to what they're doing on set. So that, that my obsession with the MTF is really because it's the frequency response and what you're doing Digitally, you are picking up from what the guys were doing on set. 
So if you take a, an absolute typical example of like a close-up, you can blur the image so that the skin tone looks quite soft and all of that. But then if you sharp, if you sharpen um, the extreme high frequencies, um, you will bring back the eye light. Mm -hmm. And that then, then suddenly you, you've now given access to your actors in terms of their performance or, or as, as a, an actor such as Russell Crowe would refer to is the wetness of the eyes because it, it, the, the you know actors are all, it's no big surprise they're always working with their eyes um, so you, you really want to be able to access what's going on there so um, you, you want a sharp image that gets all that details you know the wetness in the eyes if if the actors are kind of uh, starting to tear up on a performance so that that so you know you want a sharp image but you, you you don't want a super sharp image where the skin tone just looks awful or the the pores of the skins look uh, hard and that, that you, you're really making it a very unattractive image and that you're then int introducing all sorts of technical considerations if there's fine pattern in the clothing you know that that that's all moraine so that 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 means that you can just change the frequency response or your mtf so basically you can blur the image or that it's soft up until the point of your um eye lights which can be quite sharp it's sharp and then you can sharpen that in so it it's exactly the same as in music or music mixing where you're you know equalizing you know for tone or or, or treble it, it's exactly the same thing and so you can do that digitally with a lot more control, just as the DPs will do. So, you know, in the old days, if you were shooting with diffusion, you wouldn't just shoot with one diffusion for the whole film. You know, you would have different sets from the close-ups to the wides and, and all of that. So that, that, that's why I think that's important because it's actually the, the texture of the image and it's also the flare uh you you know the blooming and, and how the colors kind of interact together that's so fascinating and I, I, it just seems so much more important uh when you get out of the the hundred knit container of sdr i mean it of course matters there as well but i i know for me with the more work i do with hdr and when i'm looking at an image and it'll a, a new frame will pop up and i'll go oh that's a little crunchier like the contrast is a little heavy there and I often find myself going like, well, is it contrast or is it texture? Or is it a little bit of both in terms of where this needs to go? They're so intertwined uh, and, and you really can't, you, you can no longer, I feel like I, I got away in, in my practice, maybe I'm just a, 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 a careless uh, artist, but I got away in my practice with SDR for many years without ever really thinking about texture besides like, oh, let's add some film grain or let's soften it a little bit overall. But you're talking about using, uh, you know, the, a, an equalizer, like you mentioned, and I'm really playing with like, all right, at this section of the MTF, do I want to go softer? Do I want to go sharper? And really sculpting that in accordance again with that kind of creative brief and, and creative vision that uh, you have worked out with your collaborators. That's such a new frontier, I feel like. Oh. Uh well, they they always everyone always used to use that. I mean, the you know the in the old days, there was 
a optical printer at the Technicolor North Hollywood Labs that everyone would prefer to use, the number seven, because they had the latest <laughs> hydraulic filters. Or, or yeah, I mean, it, it, again, if we think of like music videos in the Telecine days, where people were doing all sorts of things, you know, you'd shoot on Neg, but then you would do the filters on the Telecine chain, or there was all sorts of really wild and crazy stuff. Um, it's just taking that out of the slightly randomized, rather unpredictable world and just putting it into the uh, digital world where you can control it and to modulate it really across two hours. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about exerting such granular control and about, and about having iterative control to say, oh no, that's actually a little too much of that. I'm gonna pull that back both of which are, are, are new things that are obviously very powerful, but uh, they put new onus on uh, the colorist and uh, other filmmakers uh, involved in those decisions to really nail it because you do have so much more control, right? Yep. Uh, yes. And it, it's, uh, and I, I think the audience appreciates that. I, I think the, the viewing audience is quite sophisticated now because everyone has a a pretty decent display. I mean, if you think about the quality of iPhones and iPads, I mean, they now have become the de facto review tool these days. So, you know, basically you could argue that just about everyone really is viewing on a 2K P3 really quite decent monitor. And they also have access with their own imagery, uh, with their own tools, you know, with Instagram and, and all, all the rest of it. So this process of giving a look, everyone, it's become part of the, the vernacular. So um, as a colorist, you kind of need to keep up with everyone, frankly. Yeah, for sure. Well, Peter, I feel like, maximum another nine or 10 hours and I could get my first list of questions <laughs> answered from you. Um, but since I uh, can't co-opt your entire day, I want to wrap up today by asking you about sort of charting a career, uh, both in terms of like a being successful creatively, but also professionally. Let's say I'm a year one colorist or a year two colorist and I'm, I'm really committed. I'm all in. I want to do this thing. I want to cultivate my craft and I also want to, you know, like make a living doing it. What, what, what prescription would you give me? Do you have any advice to offer? Well, uh, I think find yourself some collaborators, you know, filmmakers that kind of you can work with. Uh, and, uh, and uh, I think just be aware that you, you are playing with some pretty big dollars you know, if you if you pick up a big, you know, Netflix series or or an Amazon series, that's you you are taking on quite a responsibility because you are creating the final product. So uh, I think whatever you do at whatever scale, um, to, to to make sure that that basically, I guess, in shorthand, that you can get stuff out the door. That, that your product really will pass QC and that all, all technically it will actually deliver 
what's required, you know, uh, to take the delivery specs seriously. Uh, and and if, if you as the colorist feel that that's not really um, your area, you, you'll need to make sure somebody's in charge of that. Uh, <laughs> because otherwise, yeah, it's like as a studio, they're going to go, well, this person's fantastic and they're going to be able to, you know, bring an enormous amount of creativity to the table. Um, that's great. But how do we, how do we get our master that's going to be, you know, technically up to standard and, and will work. Uh, so I think as a colorist, you, you'll need to um, look at your team or put together. A, I, I, I guess in summary is to not be a lone wolf. Interesting. Yeah. That makes uh, a lot of sense. Because, you know, the stuff's going to break. So are, are you going to swap out your graphics card? or <laughs> Are um, you going to build that LUT that ends up breaking in the cyans or whatever? Uh, and then, you know, you, you get your, your EDL turned over. It's like, uh, okay, and there's now a thousand visual effects shots, but there was a change of heart. You know, are, are you going to go through and do this by hand yourself? I think it's just just take take a bit of a holistic approach to um, I, I, I guess in really brutal terms where you want to be uh, in the great cog in this great machinery. Yes. Um, to 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 be the freelance guy that kind of just swans in, does the grade, and kind of wanders off. That can work. Um, but then that, that just means you'll, you'll need to build that relationship with the facility to make sure that that's kind of working. So I, I think that that would be the main thing because uh, there's a, a lot of independents now that are great, um, but they, they, they can't offer everything else that's also needed if you're delivering something to a studio or, or a, you know, Netflix. So I, I think that's really just working out where you want to be in, in the greater scheme. Well, I, 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 what, what it also sounds to me like is, is what I think is great advice, which is, okay, there's most new colorists I would venture are worried about how am I going to get the opportunities? And it sounds like part of what you're saying is you should probably be making sure that you know how you're going to deliver like fantastically on those opportunities when they do come your way and that you have a plan and a roadmap for, okay, here's the parts that I can do well and the boxes that I can tick. And here are the things that I don't want to touch or can't touch that I'm going to rely on person X or Y to support me with so that I can actually make good on this opportunity once it does present itself. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, I keep hearing that the industry is changing and it'll go like the sound industry where there'll be the houses where they do all the services except the mix and then the mixes as freelance will come in. Um, I, I, I keep hearing that predicted, but I haven't quite seen that happen. Uh, I, I think, and it actually depends on the market as well. You know, that LA is very different to London, which again is very different to New York. Uh, but uh, I think if you're a younger colorist starting up, I, the, the thing that I would suggest is to avoid trying to rebuild a big facility. Or, or to be aware that if you are taking on a, a big, you know, eight part series for Netflix or Amazon or a big studio picture, it's, 
it's not just the grade. There's a whole bunch of other things involved. And if, if you look at a typical DI or a post budget, the grade is a certain component. The deliverables are actually a larger component financially. And, you know, do you do deliverables yourself? So uh, I think the, the, the smart thing to do would be to partner up or at least have discussions with some facilities to go, okay, if I get a grade, can I come into your place and do the grade? And then just clarify, okay, who does what and all of that. And then uh, th that would be the first thing that I would be doing if I was, so if I was starting today, uh, I'd make sure, you know, I had my own like little system, but then I, I would sit down with some of the bigger facilities to go, okay, is this going to be possible? If I, if I have a project, I can bring it to the room where then your guys handle the conform and the deliverables and everything else. Because otherwise it can just, if you're a little boutique, you, you take on these monster productions that they'll just kill you. Yeah, I, 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 I can vouch for that firsthand that like, you know, yeah. early in my career being like, cool, I got this thing. And like, man, like we're really vibing creatively and like the grade looks awesome, but the job is not done at that point. You got to deliver all of these, in some cases, exotic and far flung and ever changing uh, formats and standards. And if you don't deliver on that, then, you know, like the, the, the last impression is the, the lasting impression. Right. And that's, that, that, that doesn't do anyone any favors to, you know, like flag at the, you know, like finish line there. Yep. Um, well, that's great advice. Uh, and, and, uh, I, I'm so grateful for, uh, the, the time that you've given us this morning, Peter, and for sharing your experience and insights and for, I, I feel smarter just uh, uh, listening to you talk about this stuff. I don't know if that's actually the case, but I feel that way. So uh, I'll go into my day feeling a little more more educated and capable of making uh, the the magic of color grading happen, uh, or at least uh, at least know how to be verbose. So. <laughs> well, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, I mean that's that's half the battle for ultimately being a visual product that we're producing. Language and dialogue is such an integral integral part of, uh, of, of what we do. So, uh, absolutely. I'm going to take that lesson too. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, no, well, thank you for your time. It was a uh, very interesting to think about this. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Peter. I hope to cross paths with you again soon and happy grading cool. until then. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.